0: Take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. Hopefully you grabbed a bulletin on your way in the door, and you can find in that bulletin an outline that you can follow along with as we go through the message today. I'm preaching a message this morning I've entitled, Witnesses to Christ, Witnesses to Christ. And we'll see what that's all about as we go through the text today. Many of you are probably familiar with Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is a very well-known author of many books and a Christian apologist. Uh, His best-known work is this one, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was an attorney by training and education, but an investigative journalist by occupation for the Chicago Tribune. And in the first chapter of this book, The Case for Christ, he begins that chapter by giving a story that he actually reported on when he was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune uh, that shows the Reality and the significance of a very credible witness in a court case. This particular court case was a murder case where there was one by the name of Elijah Baptist, no relation, and he was a 16-year-old delinquent. He already, at this young age, had some 30 arrests on his record. He was on trial for gunning down and killing a grocery store owner by the name of Sam Blue. Well, Elijah was convicted by one testimony, by one eyewitness giving a witness on the stand, a fellow by the name of Leo Carter. You see, Leo Carter saw the murder take place because he and a friend were playing basketball next to the store where he was gunned down. But what made his testimony so believable and so powerful is because Elijah Baptist had hunted down and shot in the head every potential eyewitness to the original crime. And that included Leo Carter. And so unlike the other eyewitnesses, Leo Carter actually survived the attack. And there he was in high drama in that courtroom, questioned by the prosecutor. And he was asked, missing an eye, scarred face, do you see the culprit in the courtroom today? And Leo Carter raised his hand and pointed at Elijah Baptist. That's him. That believable, credible witness meant it was a quick work for the jury to convict him of murder. You see, a highly credible witness can be very convincing. Well, long ago, there was another court case, as it were, Jesus was on trial for charges of blasphemy, that he would blasphemed God by actually claiming to be God in the flesh, to be the son of God. Now, no one could deny that Jesus made those claims. It was obvious to everyone who heard him and saw him. Now, in the passage we studied last week, we considered three particular claims that Jesus made, three prerogatives, if you will, that he attributed to himself, friends, that could only be attributed to God. Let's review them. First, Jesus claimed that he, and through his voice, he could provide a spiritual rebirth to those who are spiritually dead. Friends, that's something only God can do. Secondly, Jesus claimed that he would be the one who sits in authority on judgment day and judges all people. That's something that only God has the prerogative to do. And thirdly, we saw last week that Jesus actually claimed that he would give a word He would give a command, and all dead people across the planet would be resurrected to life. Again, that's something only God can do. Those are startling, fantastic, phenomenal claims that Jesus made about himself. But here's the deal. Jesus of Nazareth was not the first person to claim to be God in human flesh, and he certainly wasn't the last. You could visit any mental institution across our country and you'll find probably multiple people who claim to be the son of God, God incarnate. So what does it mean that Jesus claimed to be God? It's one thing to make that claim. It's another thing to actually prove it. So what does Jesus do to prove that his claims are true? What does Jesus present as evidence, as eyewitness testimony to prove that he is in fact the son of God. Well, there are three eyewitnesses he brings to the stand in our text for today. So let's look at our focal text, John chapter five. We'll begin reading from verse 31 and we'll read through the end of this chapter. This is the word of the Lord, hear it. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, How will you believe my words? One thing I want us to know as we go through this passage today is the Christian faith is anything but blind faith. We don't exercise a blind faith in God. Some of you may have seen pictures or drawings or sculptures of what's known as Lady Justice. Lady Justice is this depiction of a woman who has a sword in one hand, a balance of scales in the other hand, and then her eyes are blindfolded. You often see a statue like this in a courtroom or outside of a court of law. And this blindfold is to indicate that justice will be blind in how it is executed, that it won't give favoritism to one group or party over another. Hmm. We know about that sometimes, right? Now, Jesus begins this section by saying that if he alone was to bear witness about who he is and his nature and his identity, well, you shouldn't just believe him. And we might think, well, if anybody would be a credible witness about themselves, surely it would be Jesus. Surely he would be a credible witness. But Jesus is saying, listen, if I alone make claims about myself, don't believe me. Why would he say that? Because Jesus recognized the Old Testament law that let every fact be established on the evidence of Two or three witnesses. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. In fact, Jesus reiterated this same principle, this same legal following in Matthew chapter 18 when he says, If you have an accusation against a brother or a sister, let that accusation of unrepentant sin be confirmed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus, even before the Sanhedrin here in John chapter 5, is submitting himself to this legal precedent. Don't just believe what I say about myself. There's got to be two or three witnesses that give evidence to that. And there's wisdom in that, isn't there? There's wisdom in seeking to know if a fact is established on the evidence of more than just one person's word for it. In fact, I would even say it's true about yourself. That you need to know about yourself, just not on what you think about yourself, because we can be self-deceived, but on what other people say about us. We tend to say things, or particularly here in 2022, hear things like, nobody knows you like you. Malarkey. <laughs> We're self-deceived. We rarely give ourselves an honest, fair self-assessment. Our family, the Wallister family, we've got a lot of phrases and statements that have developed over the years that are kind of like these little inside jokes and these phrases pop up from time to time and we'll all get a chuckle out of them. One such phrase in our family is this one. You don't know, you don't know my life. Now, well, that phrase was uttered by about a nine-year-old Amber who's here. And basically here's how it went down. As we recall, I spoke with several family members to try to recall. We don't know exactly what was said, but basically Amber said something. And then those who were around said, don't you mean to say such and such? And she said, mm, that's what I said. No, you didn't say that. You said this. You don't know. You don't know my life. (laughs) That was her response. And now that phrase has lived on in perpetuity in the Walliser family. You don't know my life. But we say that about ourselves. Only I know my life. (laughs) Malarkey. We rarely give ourselves a fair shake. We are self-deceived. We hear things in the world. And people say things like, do whatever feels right trust your heart, go with your feelings, be true to yourself. Friends, we need a couple of witnesses to bear witness to who we are and what we are. For instance, if I were to tell you today, this this week marks actually 15 years that I've been the pastor at Lookout Valley Baptist Church. If I were to tell you something I've been hiding from you for 15 years is this, I'm actually a very amazing dancer. Why are you laughing (laughs) I would say, let every fact be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Don't sign me up for Dancing with the Stars unless you first talk to my wife, who will tell you that's not true. And then in this passage, Jesus says, don't just take my word for it. Let every fact be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. He says, even as believable as John the Baptist is, don't just take John the Baptist's word for it. That's what he says. John the Baptist, as we may remember, was the one who in the first chapter of this gospel proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He testified of Jesus's nature and identity multiple times. But Jesus is going to present three witnesses here in John 5 that are even greater eyewitnesses than John the Baptist. Look again at verse 35 and 36. Jesus says, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, to be sure, John the Baptist was a significant witness. He said, this is the Christ. And many who were following John the Baptist turned and started following Jesus. But Jesus is saying here, I've got some expert witnesses to bring to the stand that are even greater than John the Baptist.'" At any court trial, a good attorney will bring to the stand what are known as expert witnesses. These are individuals that have particular training or insight or expertise in a particular field that will help bolster that attorney's case. So, for instance, he may bring to the stand a handwriting expert. He may bring to the stand someone who is an expert in cell phone usage and logs and calls and text messages. He may bring to the stand an expert in DNA forensic evidence. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He's going to bring three expert witnesses to the stand that are going to significantly bolster his case. So ladies and gentlemen, the first expert witness I'd like to bring to the stand this morning is number one, the works that were accomplished the works that were accomplished by Jesus. This is the first expert witness. It's not a person, it's a group. It's a collection of signs, of miracles, of wonders that Jesus had accomplished. And Jesus is saying, these works that I've been doing in Jerusalem and Judea and to, in Galilee and Samaria, these very works that the Father has given me to accomplish, these testify about me. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. What's Jesus saying? He's telling the Sanhedrin, a, an official gathering of the highest legal and theological court in Israel. He's telling them, listen, just look at the works I've been doing. If you don't believe that I am who I claim to be, what's been going on? Now, Jesus's miracles were not just fables. They were not just hearsay. They were not just legends. They were established facts. In fact, the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's fantastic. Jesus did incredible works, miraculous works. Think about it. Following Jesus everywhere he went in Judea, In his wake was health, healing, sickness, and disease were eliminated for all intents and purposes while Jesus was performing his ministry. Thousands upon thousands. I think one of the awesome things is gonna be when we're in heaven is hearing about all the other miracles and works Jesus did in his ministry that they haven't recorded in the gospels. In fact, it's these miracles, they are signs, they're pointing us to something. I would remind you again of the theme verse of the Gospel of John because it tells us what they're pointing to. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I've only given you seven, but I've given you these seven so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the signs. That's the purpose of the miracles. And think about it. What is a miracle that Jesus performed? A miracle is basically this. A miracle is changing the nature of something. Water to wine. Disease into health. Death into life. A miracle... At its base definition, is Jesus, by his power and authority, changing the nature of something? Let me ask you, is Jesus still performing miracles today? Absolutely he is. Many of you could stand and testify of how in your own life, Jesus has changed your very nature. But I can't speak for you, so I'm going to speak for myself. At 13 years old, I was a potty mouth punk. I lived only for the approval of my peers and friends. I I was overtly concerned about what other people thought about me. I did not want under, under any circumstances to be thought of as uncool. But there's a miracle that happened. In the summer between seventh and eighth grade, Jesus transformed my dead, dirty heart into life. And so first day of school, eighth grade, Eisenhower Junior High School, I got off that bus the first day a different kid. In fact, I walked off the bus with this very Bible in my hand. It's a King James Rory study Bible. I guarantee you, I was the only 14, 13-year-old that got off the bus with one of these. And I began to take this Bible to all of my peers and all of my classmates and all of my friends, and I began to share the unchanging gospel of Jesus with them. Not only that, you know, you had to choose your elective for the year. Now, there's different electives you could choose. Marching band, eh. <laughs> art, no, sorry, Trent. I could have chosen home economics, no. <laughs> A fourth option was drama and speech. So I chose that. And so the first day of class, the teacher begins to tell us what we're going to do in the drama speech class all year long. We're going to do a couple of plays. We're going to do some some improvisation. And you're going to be giving three speeches in this class throughout the course of the year. One speech will be an informative speech. Another speech will be an entertaining speech. And finally, the third speech you'll give towards the end of the year will be a, a persuasive speech where you'll try to persuade people to believe or to accept something. And I knew immediately what my persuasive speech was going to be. So as we get towards the end of the school year and I tell my teacher, here's the subject matter I want to persuade my class towards, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And amazingly, in this public junior high school, she said, okay, that was really the first sermon I ever preached. My brother Tony helped me write the speech. And there in that public school classroom among my 30 classmates, I begin to try to persuade them towards the gospel. I told them about the holiness of God and how he is the creator to whom we are all accountable. I told them about the sinfulness of man, how all of us have broken God's law and thereby we are accountable to God, to his righteous justice. But then I also told them about the goodness of Jesus. How Jesus, the one and only Son of God, came and was tempted just as we are tempted, yet without sin. And he died on the cross as a substitute payment for our sin, was resurrected from the dead on the third day to give new life to all who trust in him. And I closed that speech by saying, the only appropriate response to this good news, if you would be persuaded, is to repent and believe in the gospel. And here's what I did in that public school classroom. Don't tell me Jesus can't be preached in the public schools. I said, I'd like to ask all of my classmates to bow their heads and close their eyes. And I gave an invitation. And I said, if anybody in this room would like to repent and believe in Jesus, would you please lift up your hand and let me know about it? And there was one girl who was getting emotional towards the end of my speech, and she slipped her hand up. And I prayed with her right then and there. Now, do I tell you that story to let you know I was a good little Baptist boy in eighth grade? No, I tell you that story to let you know About the miraculous power of Jesus. The same Jesus who invaded Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and invaded his life and hit him off his high horse and turned him into a proclaimer of the gospel changed my life and he changed many of your lives too. This is the miraculous power of Jesus. Verse 36, he says to the gathered assembly there, for the works of that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. This is the first witness he calls to the stand. The second expert witness he calls to the stand to testify is this. Number two, the word that was announced. The word that was announced. This witness Jesus calls to the stand is the very voice of God speaking over the Lord, affirming Jesus publicly. Look again at verse 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Most scholars who I read this week uh, all were in agreement that the voice Jesus is talking about, the Bearing witness from the Father is the very audible voice that Jesus spoke, that, excuse me, God the Father spoke over Jesus on multiple occasions in his ministry. You'll remember the first time this happened, of course, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. In fact, notice how Luke records this event. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, now when all the people were baptized. And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. There are other instances of the voice of God affirming and audibly endorsing Jesus. One such event is the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was gathered with three of his disciples, this author of this gospel being one of them, John, and there his appearance changed before him. The veil of flesh was replaced with the Shekinah glory of God that began to beam from him. And as Jesus is praying, as Jesus is speaking, Moses and Elijah appear there. Notice how Matthew records what happened. Again, the Father spoke from heaven. He, Jesus, was still speaking, When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so in our focal passage in John 5, Jesus says, Here's another eyewitness. The voice of God the Father bears witness of me. But you've not heard him. You've not listened to him. You've not believed him. The word for voice there in Greek is the Greek word phone, from which we get phonograph or telephone it literally talks about an audible sound a voice and then you move to verse 38 and he uses the term logos for word and the word logos typically refers to the teaching of the lord and likely jesus is referring here to the scriptures which really leads right into the third witness the third expert he brings to the stand number three the writings that were accepted There were writings that the Jewish leaders accepted as being authoritative, as being the word of God. He mentions that in the end of this section, the writings of Moses. You know, when an attorney attorney arranges his witnesses as he's preparing his case to present before a jury or a judge, he will often hold on to the star witness, the most important witness, until the very end. He's going to close his case with that, and it seems this is the way Jesus has arranged his witnesses as well the most credible witness, the accepted writings of the Jews, the Old Testament scriptures. Why would this be the most significant for them? Because they proclaimed allegiance to the Torah. They proclaimed allegiance to the law of Moses. They memorized the scriptures. They labored over the scriptures. But this is perhaps the most extreme case of profoundly missing the point, (laughs) They missed the point of the Scriptures. Notice again what Jesus said in verse 39. You search, that word means to pour over. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, the testimony of the Scriptures, again, provides the most profound evidence of the nature of Jesus. The religious leaders, they acknowledge the Scriptures as having the highest highest. Authority, but this raises the question. Here it is: If they poured over the scriptures, if they studied the scriptures, if they memorized the scriptures, vociferously, <laughs> why did they not see Jesus in the scriptures? Well, there are thousands, perhaps, of Bible scholars today who teach in the ivory towers of academia, who study in the original languages, but yet do not accept. Jesus. Why? (laughs) This matters how you come to the Scripture and why you come to the Scripture. These Bible scholars of Jesus' day and even to our day, they miss the central message of the Scripture, Jesus, because of reasons of how and why they come to the Scripture. Three things I want you to see. The first one, they come with the wrong attitude. They come to the Scriptures with the wrong attitude. Again, Jesus said, you search the Scriptures Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. See, it was not the message of the scriptures that provides eternal life. It's just the scriptures. They thought, well, if we possess the scriptures and we study the scriptures, then we're going to have life. In fact, one of the most famed rabbis of Judaism, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Hillel, put it like this. He said, more Torah, more life. Whoso hath gained the word of the Torah hath gained for himself life in the world to come. You see, these Jewish leaders and scholars, they were obsessed with the scriptures. They poured over the scriptures, they studied and memorized. But really, they did it in a somewhat trivial way. They wanted to know what's the middle verse of the middle chapter of the middle book and and those types of trivialities. And they missed, as it were, the forest for the trees. This can be the attitude of churchgoers today. You might have sitting on your mantle your Bible drill trophy from 1978. (laughs) You may have a ribbon for memorizing the most verses of scripture in your Sunday school class. And those are all well and good so long as you remember the reason why we pursue and pour over the scriptures. The message of the Bible is to be primary. In fact, think about it like this. Look at this next picture. Imagine standing with someone before this window that has an absolutely breathtaking view of a beautiful, deep blue ocean. And what would you say if the person you're standing beside didn't talk about the ocean, but just talked about the window? And he began to describe the dimensions of the window, the material that the window is built with. Oh, look at this, this is oak, I believe. Look at the wonderful craftsmanship of this window, and it has these latches. These latches are so secure. They're so strong. It's a very secure window. I'm telling you, if you wanted to put a window in, this is the kind of window you should put in. And you would look at him like, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> you look at the view of the window. The window exists not to draw attention to itself, but to give you a vista. And this is exactly the purpose of the Bible. The purpose of the Bible is not for us to just look at it and study the trivialities of it, but so that the Bible would give us a vista. The Bible would give us a view. The Bible would open up for us this incredible look and that we would see and we would savor Jesus Christ. The Jews didn't accept Jesus because they came to the scriptures with the wrong attitude. It was all about jots and tittles. They also came to the scriptures with the wrong agenda. They came with the wrong agenda. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. You see, they were looking for a Messiah, but they were looking for a Messiah who would come with the right agenda. They were looking for someone who would come as a leader who had at his forefront national pride. Make Israel great again. (laughs) That was the kind of Messiah they were looking for. That had an agenda for the nation. Dominant power in the region again, again. Throwing off the captors of Rome. They were looking for someone, quote, who comes in his own name. In other words, he presents these worldly credentials. I'm the one you're wanting to follow because of all that I can do in my own name. They were looking at the scriptures for a Messiah with the wrong agenda. And Jesus' words have been proven true in history. Time and time again, would-be messiahs had come in and out of Jerusalem that were followed. The religious leaders threw the weight of their importance upon. And one such leader, a famous example, is one Simon Bar-Kachba. Simon Bar-Kachba came as a warrior in A.D. 132. He claimed to be the Messiah. And again, the ruling class of the Pharisees through the weight of their influence behind Simon Bar Kochman. He led a revolt against the Roman occupiers, and he was quickly squashed. He was killed, as were thousands of his followers. They wanted an uprising. They wanted a Messiah who would come with that right agenda. They had the wrong attitude about the scriptures. They had the wrong agenda. Thirdly, they had the wrong affection, the wrong affection. Look at verse 42, what Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Wow, what a stinging rebuke to these who were supposed to be the guardians of truth. You don't really have the love of God in you. They loved their ideas about God, They love their rules about God. You know, a clear test that someone has been transformed by the scriptures is not only do they have a deep love for God, but they demonstrate and show God's love for others. Paul described this genuine transformation that comes from the scriptures when he wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter one. Notice what what Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, the aim of our charge is is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You see, not only was the Pharisees' message devoid of God's love for mankind, it was devoid of their love and showing love to others. This is proven right here in John chapter five. Their reaction to the healing of the lame man who had been lame an invalid for over three decades. He's healed miraculously. Did they show any compassion for him or love for him? No, all they were concerned about was, who told you to pick up your mat on the Sabbath day and carry it? Don't you know that breaks our rules? No love for people. No love for God. Now, when Jesus spoke of the scriptures, he was obviously referring to the Old Testament. Why? Why? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He's living the New Testament, right? He's referring to the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the scriptures. And he says, it is those scriptures, the Old Testament that bears witness of me, that predicts Jesus. And as we move towards a conclusion, i want to show you real quickly, really three categories in which the Old Testament communicates Jesus. The Old Testament speaks of Jesus in these predictions, prophecies, Types and ceremonies. There are prophecies that are written that predict Jesus hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before he came on the scene. There are types that typify or model the work of Jesus, and there are ceremonies that portray Jesus. We could be here all day rehearsing these as they're recorded in the scriptures. Let me just give you an abbreviated list of some of the prophecies. There's over actually 100 specific. Predictions, prophecies about just the, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the Old Testament. Here's a few I'll rehearse. In Zechariah 11:12, 12, the Bible says he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. In Isaiah 56, the Bible says he would be beaten in the face and spit upon. In Psalm 22 16, it says his hands and feet would be pierced with nails. On Psalm 22 15, it says that he would agonize in thirst. And despite the normal practice of Roman crucifixion, no bone of his would be broken, according to Psalm 3420. And after death, according to Isaiah 53, 9, Jesus' body would be buried in a rich man's tomb. The Old Testament not only prophesies the specifics of his death, the Old Testament prophesies and predicts the significance of his death. Why did Jesus die? They haven't caught it yet in the songs we've sung, the prayers we've prayed, or the words that's been preached. Perhaps you'll catch it here. What was the significance of Jesus' death? Isaiah the prophet writes in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we are healed. There are also types of Jesus in the Old Testament. Noah was a type in the ark of safety that rescued the family of God. Moses was a type of Jesus as the deliverer of those who were in prison enslaved. David is a type in the royal kingship of Jesus. Solomon is a type in the wisdom of Jesus. All these typify the coming Savior. Prophecies, there's types, there's ceremonies. Perhaps the most significant ceremonies that portray the work of Jesus Christ is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament millions of gallons of blood being shed in Jerusalem in the tabernacle and the temple that would follow, all to make temporary atonement for the sins of the people. Perhaps the most important festival was known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on Yom Kippur, two male goats would be brought to the temple, and the high priest would sacrifice one of those male goats And he would take the blood of that goat and enter the very holy place, the holy of holies, and this only one time a year. And he would sprinkle on the mercy seat, there the Ark of the Covenant, the blood of that goat, signifying the atonement that's made for the sins of the people. What about the second goat? That second goat with his bloody hands, he would place his bloody hands on that second goat. And this was known as the scapegoat. You've heard of that before? And after he would place his hands on the scapegoat. By that sign, he was making imputation, as it were, transferring the sins of the people onto the scapegoat who would then walk away out into the woods, not to be seen by the people anymore, signifying what Christ would do, that the blood that he shed, he would take away our sins from us as far as the east is from the west for anyone who would trust in him. Just as then, today, people view, people approach the Scriptures with the wrong attitude, with the wrong agenda, with the wrong affection. But even at that, there are countless testimonies who have approached the Scripture with those wrong attitudes and agendas who the Scripture has transformed miraculously. One such example is a fellow by the name of Simon Greenleaf. Simon Greenleaf was a co-founder of the Harvard Law School. I've got a picture of Simon. His three-volume work, Treatise on the Law of Evidence, published between 1842 and 1853, is still required textbooks in law schools today. Here's what Simon Greenleaf s- sought to do. Using his laws of evidence, he approached the four Gospels with this desire to prove them wrong. Using Evidential practices and precepts. He ended up not refuting Christianity, but accepting the claims of Christ because of the believability of the witnesses of the four gospels. In fact, he became a committed Christian, setting a foundation for a new discipline evidentiary apologetics of Christianity. Greenleaf was especially persuaded by the way the disciples who wrote the four Gospels, how they proclaimed to their ancient world their belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead. It even cost them their lives. Greenleaf explains his reasoning, and I'm going to read this rather lengthy quote, but I'll close with this today because I think it's so profound. He writes regarding Jesus' disciples these words. Their master had recently perished as a malefactor by the sentence of a public tribunal. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt, opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously did propagate. and all these miseries, they endured undismayed, nay, rejoicing. The annals of military warfare afford scarcely of an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblenching courage. It is therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they have narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact because of the credible testimony of the witnesses the apostles own testimony of Jesus' life his death burial and resurrection this stubborn skeptic Simon Greenleaf became a committed Christian and defender of the faith as I close today I would just ask one question what about you what about you Do you believe who Jesus has claimed to be? Son of God? Do you believe what Jesus claims he came to do? perform the miraculous work of heart change in you? If you have not done that, I'm gonna give you the same opportunity I gave my classmates 40 years ago. I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Every head bowed. Everybody, eye closed, nobody looking around except for me and the Lord. If you're here this morning and you would affirm in your own heart of hearts, you know, I've never trusted in Jesus. I've heard about him, I've appreciated him, but I've never given my life to him. I've never placed my faith in his substitutionary work. I've never repented of my sins and Surrender to him as the Lord of my life. If you're within the sound of my voice today, and today you would like to say, Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I commit my life to you. Would you simply indicate so by lifting up your hand? Keep your hand up. Anyone else? You can put your hand down. I'm gonna pray for you, pray with you. Lord Jesus, I thank you for those who raised their hand today, who said today they want to trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would move continually in their hearts to give them faith and repentance. Now, if that's you this morning and you raised your hand, or maybe you were too afraid to raise your hand, would you simply communicate to the Lord what you've just communicated to me? Would you tell him that you believe he is the creator of the universe? Would you tell them that you believe in the very Son of God who came onto this planet and walked a human life as you've walked, was tempted to sin just as you were tempted? Would you declare to the Lord, I'm a sinner, I've broken your law, I'm guilty, and thereby deserve your punishment? And would you simply tell Jesus, today, Jesus, I trust in what you've done. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you died for me. You took the punishment in my place. And I believe I will have new life in you. Look up here for a minute. I want to give you my last thought. It's this right here. The evidence is overwhelming. Jesus is God. You know how I know that? Because he changed the nature of some hearts today.